Welcome. I'm John Eldridge, and you have just uh, plugged in CD number one in a four-part series on the four streams. Let me give you a little introduction. The four streams idea comes out of a question, and the question is simply this. How does Jesus restore us? How does Christ bring us from brokenness to healing, from captivity to freedom, from death to life? How do we find that life that Christ promises us in the scripture, but that most of us as Christians have found, frankly, so elusive? Let's go back to the offer. When Jesus steps into his public ministry, as recorded in Luke uh, chapter 4, he announces his mission. He declares the purpose of his coming. It's a pretty important moment. All the eyes are on him, and there's been a lot of speculation about who the Messiah will be and why he will come. Is he a political deliverer? Is he going to restore the nation of Israel? Is he going to usher in some new kingdom of heaven? What is he going to do? What's his offer to us? And Jesus could have quoted any of thousands of Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, but he chose one. He chose Isaiah chapter 61, and he says that the Spirit of God has sent him to heal the brokenhearted and set the captive free. And then Christ goes on to illustrate what he means through all of his miracles. When he touches the blind, they see again. When he touches the deaf, they hear again. He raises the dead. Wherever humanity is broken, he restores it. Those aren't just random proofs that Jesus was the Son of God. They were illustrations for the sermon. Okay, He was trying to demonstrate his intentions toward us. And his intentions are something beautiful was lost at the fall of man. Something glorious about our humanity has been broken and bound and gone into captivity. And I am here to restore you and set you free. That's the offer. That's the central promise of Christianity given to us by Jesus and then illustrated throughout his life. If that's the offer of Christianity, then back to the question, how? How does Jesus actually do it? How do we experience that restoration, that uh, profound healing, that release from captivity? How do we get that? And I would offer that if you look at the way that Jesus relates to people, if you look at the way he ministers to them, you'll find that his ministry comes to us in four streams. And I'll explain those streams now at the opening of this conference. The recording that you're about to hear was done in Colorado with a gathering of men who had come to learn the four streams and how to apply them in their lives. But I want to say right out that this doesn't just apply to men. That was simply the context that I delivered these talks in. The offer of the restoration and the application of the four streams is for both men and women. And my prayer now is that as you listen to this series, that Jesus will give you eyes to see and ears to hear what he's offering, how the four streams come to us, and that he would bring these into your life so that you can find the healing and the breakthrough, the restoration and the release that you long for. Okay, enough said. That's the intro. Let's jump into the first talk. That man is dazed and confused, shell-shocked, disoriented, can't really figure out 
what's going on around him or why. That is where most men and women are. Aren't they? <laughs> I mean, my dad, good man, totally taken out. Both of my brothers-in-law, good men, totally taken out. I mean, I, I just go through the list. Most of the guys I know, good men, taken out. Days, confused. They don't really know who they are. They have no idea what their mission is. They have no idea they live in a world at war, and they are far from being trained in knowing how to fight it. I mean, they're just taking it. It's like those guys trying to get off the, the landing craft, and they're just taking it. They're just one by one by one just getting taken out. Just last Sunday, hanging around the house with the folks, get a phone call, good man on the board of several major Christian ministries, large contributor to those ministries as well, very influential man, poised to be an incredibly influential man, taken out. Calls, he's in crisis, back into his sexual addiction, boom, there it is. You know, and this is a guy who's been through it all. He's been to all the seminars, been to the conferences, goes to a great church, been through counseling, right? Done all the steps, boom. He's dazed, confused. John, John, you know, I don't know what's happened to me. I, I, I'm right back where I started. This is so normal. That is just our situation, and that is where most men are, and women as well. How do you give a man back his heart, show him his place in the battle, and teach him how to fight? You have to walk in the four streams. You have to. The reason that we don't see people living in the freedom and the life and you know, men just walking in a deep sense of, I know who I am. I'm living from a full heart that's been healed and restored by Christ. I'm very clear of my mission. I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing today. And I know how to handle it. I have what it takes. The reason that's so rare is we haven't walked in the four streams. Discipleship, counseling, healing, and spiritual warfare. For a long time, they've been separated. And if we've had a stream, one or maybe two streams, we haven't had them as fully as we need them, and we need them desperately. Counseling, because Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But it's not, right? I mean, it's not. Come on, we know tons of truth. This guy who called me on Sunday, oh my gosh. He is the most disciplined man I have ever met. It is not from a lack of discipline. He has memorized tons of scripture. Right? He knows a lot of truth. He's read all the books. He can quote mine back to me. But it hasn't set him free. Why? Psalm 51.6, Thou dost desire truth in the inmost being. Having a set of Christian propositions pass through your intellect is not what the Scriptures mean by knowing the truth. It's far from it. Simply having correct doctrinal positions or reading a passage of Scripture and going, oh, okay, you know, it, this, that's not what the Scriptures mean. We must know the truth deep in our inmost being. And frankly, there's a whole lot more down in there that's shaping our lives, our self-perception, our understanding of what's happening around us than the truth. The reason he desires truth in the inmost being is because it ain't there. 
There's all kinds of other convictions, lies, things rooted down inside. Getting the truth there is the work of the stream I'll call counseling. Healing, because there is such deep brokenness in us as human beings that no amount of exhortation, you know, just come on, guys, try it again. Try a little harder this time. That won't work. That won't, that's cruel. It, it frankly is very cruel to just get up and continue to exhort people to live the Christian life. Jesus introduces his ministry. He chooses that Isaiah 61 passage, and he says, this is my central purpose. This is my central work in any individual's life. I want to heal their broken heart, and I want to set them free from all captivity. Release them from darkness. That's how he describes his mission. And because the offer is for all of us, we must all be the brokenhearted, right? I mean, there must be something that is actually broken down within us that counseling, frankly, won't touch, that discipleship won't touch. It won't get it there. No amount of worship or scripture memorization or just trying to be a moral man. We need the stream of healing because there is a deep brokenness in us. And again, the guy who calls me on Sunday, he is a profoundly broken man. And the enemy has found that brokenness in him and preyed upon it, and thus the stream of warfare. The stream of warfare so crucial that we understand it and know it, because at the end of Revelation 12, where it describes the birth of Christ, the great war in heaven, Michael and his angel fight against the devil, Satan and his angels fight back, they're not strong enough, they're hurled to the earth. The end of the passage in Revelation 12, the end of the chapter says, and then he went, Satan went off to make war against all those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's what he's doing now. That's where we are. He is making war against us. So come, so completely ordinary. I did not have a good night of sleep last night. It was witchcraft, mostly. It's warfare. Prayed against it, prayed against it, prayed against it. Finally, I don't know, two, three in the morning, I fell asleep. Just warfare. It's normal, it's ordinary, it's where we live. It's why most men are so dazed and, and confused. It's not just this man struggles. It's not just that he can't get his life together. There's a deep brokenness in him. The enemy has found it, and he's just hammering this guy. He's just having a field day with him because this man will not practice spiritual warfare. He will not resist, as James 4, 7 says, or as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, he will not resist his enemy, so he won't get free. It's as simple as that, right? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, both those things in the same breath. He says them in the same sentence. Why? Because if you want life, you have to fight for it, right? Because life has a way of robbing us. I mean, really robbing us of a deep and settled confidence that God does want life for us. Right? I mean, it just chips away at that. And we begin to think, well, not me, not me, you know? Well, Jesus says, I do want life for you. Freedom, wholeness, everything. I want it all for you. But there is a thief with a different agenda. Heads up. Live like it. That's where we are now. But I want to start with the stream of discipleship because it probably is the most common stream for most Christians, for the most part. If we have one of the four streams, we have this thing called, quote, discipleship. However... <laughs> 
not as Jesus gave it. What comes to mind, what has been your experience with the stream or the offer of discipleship? What do we mean by that? Scripture memory? A notebook? Accountability? Bringing your behavior into some sort of line, right? Some kind of program, right? Yeah? I want to say often very noble programs, right? Here's how to parent. Here's how to be married. You know, classes that we offer, how to be a member of this church, right? Here is what it means to be an effective tither or giver. You know, often good, you know, programs. What else? Some kind of contract or service instead of a relationship. Pressure. A plus B equals C. You know, if you will practice this, observe this, then you will be a good Christian or a good husband or witness, right? Or whatever the outcome of the particular discipleship program is, right? Set of kind of formulas or procedures to get you there. Isn't that true? Isn't that kind of what most of us have been through? Yeah, they do tend to be very old covenant based. Primarily guilt motivated, bottom line. What is the one thing that is missing from all that we have described? Walking with God, right? I mean, seriously, you can, you can go through your entire Christian life, you know, one seminar, program, training, one person after another, good mentors looking for the deal, right? Trying to find this alleged life and never actually learn to walk with God. Just for a moment, think about what does discipleship look like? Take away the religious stuff. You've got these guys, most of them knuckleheads. You know, I mean, really, you know, for the most part, they're a wreck. They, I mean, they're a royal mess, you know, self-righteous, self-centered. They got personal agendas, all of it, right? These guys are invited by Jesus to do what? Just hang with me. You know, walk with me and learn from me. It is the simplest thing. I don't know how we've missed it. Discipleship, as given by Jesus, means learning to walk with God. It's the one thing that Christianity can offer that no other religion in the world, Stephen Covey, no other set of principles, leadership, training, development, no other program can give you. And it's like, it's like our birthright. I mean, we've just sold it down the river. It's the one thing we don't teach. Discipleship is simply learning to walk with God intimately, personally, closely. We went down to Santa Fe, Stacy and I, Craig and Lori, just to get away for a night, just to, to go down there, enjoy some of the galleries and, and have a meal together. And it was, it was my way of kind of pouring some things into Stacy's emotional tank before I left for five days. Okay, so it's some connection time. We're half an hour outside of Santa Fe. And I look in my rearview mirror and smoke is pouring out of the back of my Suburban. Dang, what is this? So I pull over, something's dripping on the exhaust manifold, sure enough, transmission leak. So 20 minutes, 30 minutes, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to try and limp into Santa Fe. So we get into Santa Fe, pull into a dealer, drop it off and say, hey, check it out. Tell me what it is. We're going to go up to the hotel. And that guy calls me an hour later and says, yeah, your transmission case is cracked. And uh, I said, can you take care of that for me? Well, not till Monday. Then, well, Monday's not an option. I got to be home tomorrow. 
So we went ahead, enjoyed the time. I could see the thief was there just trying to steal from this. Um, if not through the exact event itself, then certainly by putting his spin on it. Worry about it, obsess about it, let it tank your time. You know how that goes. Okay, so then the next day, decision comes. Lord, what should I do? Should I run a car, drive home, leave the suburban here, you know, and all that hassle, drive back down? Actually, I simply ask God, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And he said, I'll get you home. Meaning, take the suburban, I'll, I'll get you home. And I'm like, Lord, you know, I walk with you. I understand you're saying, go for it. Yeah, go for it. You'll be fine. Okay. So I go down to the dealer. I say, can I talk to the mechanic for a second? I want to hear what he saw. So they, they find the guy, bring him out of the shop. And so he describes me. He says, yeah, you know, your transmission case itself is cracked. It's leaking a lot of fluid. I said, well, here's my plan. I'm just going to dump fluid into it and try and get the five hours back to Colorado Springs. And he says, well, um, you know, you can go for it. He says, I'd buy about 10 quarts. But you have to understand that that could open up. I mean, that crack, and then, I mean, it'll just flush and you'll be on the side of the road. And I said, yeah, okay. Get in the car, pray over it, take off. Get about half an hour out of town, decide to stop, take a look at it. Not leaking. Check the fluid level. Fine. I'm like, okay, well, it hasn't warmed up yet. You know, so get about another half an hour, an hour into the journey now, stop, pull over, not leaking. Check the fluid, hasn't gone down a bit. We got home. It's not leaking still. discipleship is learning to walk with God receiving his intimate instruction in all kinds of situations the son Samuel has uh, entered adolescence with a roar it's amazing all of those you know sort of archetypical things of adolescence nobody understands me you know and all that, he's sulking, he's sultry, he's belligerent to his brother, he's ignoring his mom, he thinks I'm an idiot. When he's in his bad place, he's a great kid. And, uh, but boy, there is this pull. I can feel the warfare swirling around us. Part of me just wants to come down on him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh yeah, you know, we'll get this straightened out, you know? And, and the other night, he, I don't know, he did something, you know, beat up one of his little brothers and, and you know, provoked him, hurt him, then mom, and, you know, there's the argument. He's downstairs in his bedroom. I'm serious, with the door shut and the music blaring. I'm like, this is out of a textbook. <laughs> and so part of me is like, Rrr! you know, I mean, I'm just, and I can feel the pull of the enemy to lose him. I can feel it. I can feel the enemy trying to come in, and I'm going downstairs, and I don't know what I'm going to say. And as I'm walking into his room, I'm just saying, Jesus, you've got to come into this. You've got to come into this. What do I do? What do I do right now? And Jesus said, simply preserve the lines of communication. I'm like, okay, that's it. That's it. Fine. That's what we'll do. So I went in, sat down with him, and he's got, you know, his side of the story is so overblown and so <laughs> twisted. And, and part of me is wanting to, that is not what happened, you know. Hey, Preserve the lines of communication, right? You know, and, and in that situation, rescue. This, you know, I am rescued by God and my relationship with my son. And then we work through it later once he's out of the funk and, and things are fine. Walking with God, listening to his counsel. Two years ago, we had a fabulous vacation at uh, Lost Valley Ranch. One of our work crew, Brian, is a wrangler there. And uh, unbelievable time. You know, it was a full week, kids riding horses, Stacy and I, great food, wonderful family time. So last year was a no-brainer. 
We're going to go back. We'll do it again. We didn't have to even pray about our family vacation. But we stopped and said, Lord, is that, is that a good idea? The boys are saying, Lost Valley, Lost Valley, you know, and they're cheering. So we're going to go back there. And uh, Jesus said, no. What? No? Why not? No explanation, just no. Uh, I don't think I'm hearing from God, you know. <laughs> so three times we have to go back, both Stacey and I, because we're so disappointed. No, 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 no. But all three times, oh, okay, all right. So we let it go and gave up our spot and all of that. And then, you know, we pray, well, Lord, what do you, what do you want us to do with our family vacation? Go to Alaska. Alaska? Well, I mean, it's not even on the radar screen. We have no plans, no, you know, no information. What? Yeah, go to Alaska. Okay, the early Celtic Christians called the Holy Spirit the wild goose. And we have learned, if you follow him, he will lead you in the path of life. We end up going to Alaska, had a fabulous time. We were kayaking with humpback whales, sea kayaking, and we were photographing grizzly bears. And it was just this awesome, awesome time. That was the week that the Haman fire engulfed the entire valley around Lost Valley. Evacuate the guests. Vacation would have been tanked, right? Yeah, you see that? This discipleship is learning to walk with God, hearing his voice, receiving his intimate counsel, guidance, direction. You, ha- you, know, you probably know some things about me now. Um, you know I love the wilderness. You know I love wildness. Um, you know I love this. Um, you might also know that I hate cities. I, I just hate them. Um, we happen to have a view of the city. We live up on a hill, and so you can see a lot of the city lights from our house. I can't stand looking at it. I, I don't like the city. It's just not me. It doesn't turn my crank. And of all the cities in the world, I detest Washington, D.C. <laughs> that's where I lost my heart. I did time in D.C. <laughs> a number of years ago. So we're praying this last year about our calendar and this invitation comes up. These guys call us and say, we want you to bring Wild at Heart to Washington, D.C. And it might, might, I mean, it's a no-brainer for me. I mean, instant reaction, no, forget it. No way. I mean, for one thing, could you possibly do this there? You can't translate the experience, the power. The me- I mean, the message doesn't even work there. It's, all right, we'll ask God. I want you to go. What? No, don't send us there. You know, and all this wrestling with it. We pray as a team. We all hear it. We're supposed to go to D.C. 2,500 guys fill the, this hall in the Washington, D.C. Convention Center. And it was unbelievable. God showed up. It was amazing. He worked. He moved. It was so powerful. One of my deep concerns was especially the section on the wound from boot camp and that whole experience and our time of prayer and then time alone with God and all that's needed to go there. I'm like, what am I going to do? I can't even see the first row. The lights are so bright. I'm up on this big stage, and it's just, it's this sea of men. I'm thinking, Lord, do I even bring it up? You know, how do I handle this? Go for it, he says. I'm like, okay, Jesus. So I teach on the wound, and I'm like, okay, now healing prayer. Lord, you want me to lead 2,500 guys in healing prayer right now? You're kidding. Go for it. All right? So I'm praying, and I'm kind of listening to Jesus as I'm praying, and I'm guiding, and and some things that will make a lot of sense to you when I get to the section on healing. But uh, Christ is saying, okay, take my hand, and I want to lead you into healing, and all that sort of thing. And purely by faith, purely by faith, get an email from a young man a couple months later, and he says, I experienced God like I never did before in my life. 
says, he took me to places in my heart I didn't even know existed. And when you led us in that healing prayer, he said, I wept like I have never wept before. I felt the presence of God around me like I have never, ever felt it in my life. And he has healed my heart. I'm like, okay, you are the wild one, you know? We, we have learned enough to walk with God. You can't learn enough principles. You can't master enough verses. You can't get clever enough or wise enough to figure your way through this journey. You can't. Not when it's like that. You have to learn to walk with God as his intimate friend. Psalm 1611 would be sort of the theme verse of this. I mean, I have so many stories like that. I could just tell you one after another after another. Learning to walk with God. Psalm 1611, David says, you have made known to me the path of life. In just about every situation, there is a path to life. And how does Jesus describe the path to life? Narrow. Doesn't he say that? Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many there are who follow it. But narrow the path that leads to life, and few there are who find it. I mean, he's not a pessimist. He's just being realistic. He said it's narrow, it's difficult to find, and few people discover it. But the whole point is, I want the life. I want the life. And so I need to learn to walk with God. Thou hast made known to me the path of life. I think I might have told you the story about September 11th, that we were scheduled to fly an international flight from Denver to Edinburgh, Scotland, on September 11th, and uh, about two weeks before, I just start getting this sense, this urge, this prompting from God, leave on the 10th. And you know you can't change outbound flights, right? You can change your return flight for 150 bucks or whatever, but you can't, I mean, you have to rebook the whole itinerary, call the travel agency, said, well, you know what, actually, I think I can do that for you. I've got some options here. And so changed the outbound flight, left September 10th, you know what happened, right? And we were going to bring the gospel to Edinburgh, and to Dublin. It ended up being a phenomenal time. Yeah. You see, walking with God. We must learn to walk intimately with God, to hear his voice, receive his counsel. That's what discipleship means. All the other programs and stuff, they can teach you a lot of principles, but they can't teach you the one thing you most desperately need. Walking with God. Being his intimate ally, being his friend, hearing his voice. So let me unpack that a little bit. I think it comes to us along two lines. The book of Acts, you recall the ministry is really beginning to crank and the apostles find themselves waiting on tables and, and they decide we can't do this. So in Acts chapter 6, they're going to choose seven younger men to help them uh, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be, and here's their two qualifications. They are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. They say, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's how it works. Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Wisdom and revelation. That, yes, wisdom is crucial. Wisdom is essential. I don't want to downplay it for a moment. In fact, 
What I want to say is early in our experience of walking with God, I think we should rely more on wisdom. I think we rely more on the clarity given out to us in the Word. It's baseline, it's bottom, and I am going to make a lot of assumptions. I'm going to assume that. I'm going to assume Scripture is the baseline, always, in every situation. I'm going to assume that it is the inerrant Word of God. I'm going to assume that we treat it like that, because what this course is, is the more. It's the next level, right? Hebrews chapter 6. Let us not lay again a foundation of repentance and, and that sort of thing, but let us go on to the mature things, okay? So wisdom by all means. We desperately need wisdom, and especially early in learning to walk with God, because it takes time to learn how to hear God's voice, to discern which is your voice, which is God's voice, which is the enemy. Is it the poser, and the false self-speaking? Who's giving me this counsel? Alaska, September 10th, you know, what, you're going to want me to drive five hours home with a leaking transmission case. I mean, some of those times, it contravenes wisdom. And so that takes time and maturity to learn to walk into that. Wisdom is the baseline. You don't need a special word from God in, in a lot of situations. Just wisdom will tell you, don't do that, right? It's interesting that when the scriptures describe wisdom, they don't describe it as the mastery of principles. They describe it as a discerning heart, as a discerning heart. Solomon, right? He is, um, remember the one thing he asks of God. God says, I'll give you anything. And what does he ask God for? He actually asks him for a discerning heart. Says, Lord, grant me a wise and discerning heart. And that's what made him such a phenomenal man. So wise, so discerning. Wisdom is an issue of the heart. And it's something that we develop over time. To have a good heart, but to have an untrained heart is actually the most dangerous part of the journey. It really is. Because your good heart will urge you to do things that aren't wise to do. Out of a good heart... We may spend too much time trying to rescue somebody that can't be rescued. One of the truisms of warfare is some people can't be rescued. Some people cannot be rescued. And to devote ourselves to them is to be taken down. There's a really amazing episode in the life of Christ where he heals some people. It's early in the Gospel of Mark. And um, he heals a few people, word spreads. The next morning he wakes up and the whole town is there right? All the brokenness, all the need. I mean, everybody's lining up. You know what Jesus does? He leaves. He says, let us go to the other towns and villages and preach the gospel, for that is why I came, right? He's very clear on his mission, and he's not going to be suddenly swallowed by the need. This happens to so many good men, that they're suddenly swallowed by ministry or responsibility or the need out of a good heart. Heart's good, and, and it's happened to me. I come in pretty tired from a very long season of battle, a very long season of warfare. And I think some of it is just the nature of my life and my calling, but I think some of it were, were some bad choices, that I rescued people that, that God did not want me to rescue. But there's something, I mean, anytime I'm in a room, even we're having a casual conversation and somebody says, gosh, I just am feeling so hammered. You know, there's something in me that says, let's get him, you know. <laughs> but a wise heart says, 
you know what? You have really got to learn, you know, when to fight, when not to fight, when to offer, when not to offer, what to say, what not to say, and what is yours to fulfill and what is not. Jesus says, no, not them. Let's go. The danger of a good but an untrained heart is being taken out by opportunity, right? By all the things. And the enemy will do that. If he cannot get you you know, to, to side with darkness, give your heart and soul over to some addiction or bondage or something like that, then the next thing he'll do is just bury you. He will just bury you. And drivenness and getting buried is the spirit of the age right now. That's the particular strong man of the age that we live in. Absolute drivenness. Anytime you call anybody's office, don't you normally get voicemail? Yeah, I'm sorry, he's not available right now. Can I put you into voicemail? I mean, this is just common. And when you ask friends, stop people at church, hey, how are you? How's it going? Oh, so busy. You see that? Yeah, if he can't take you out through sin, he'll just take you out through drivenness, preoccupation, giving you all kinds of opportunities that you're not supposed to have. That itself will kill you. That itself will empty your heart, wear you down and take you out is the strategy of the enemy for a man with a good heart. Right? He's not going to go to sin. Just wear him down and take him out. It's actually Mark chapter 1. It's the very opening thing. It's amazing. I mean, you're one chapter into the ministry of Christ and start with verse 35 and go through that, uh, the next two paragraphs, right? Everyone is looking for you, Jesus replied. Let us go somewhere else. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. The danger of a good heart but an untrained heart Right, is launching out on something that could bring a lot of hurt and ruin to people. I told you the story last night of the two friends who started the ministry. It was the dream of their life. And uh, good guys, good hearts, incredibly unwise and very untrained in the battle. Boom, they got taken out. So I am assuming that wisdom is baseline. Wisdom is essential. Let us choose men full of the Spirit and wisdom. Okay? It's both wisdom and revelation. But there are times where wisdom is not enough. And there are times that God will ask you to do things that are very contrary to wisdom. This whole ministry, this whole thing got started one Thursday night. I mean, I have a counseling practice. I'm sitting with a couple that I've been meeting with for, I don't know, six months. We're kind of getting going here, marriage counseling. And I'm trying to listen to what's going on between them, and God starts to speak. And God says, you know, Johnny says, you're pretty good at this. You're a pretty good counselor. You're helping these people. He says, but look what you're doing. You are talking to two people right now. I want you to talk to a lot more. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want you to shut down your counseling practice. What? You're kidding me, you know? This sounds nuts, you know? Well, out of that, Ransomed Heart was launched. Out of that, you know, I speak, and through my books, I speak to millions of people. Now, my calling was not to stay in that village and just heal all the broken in that village, right? My calling was to let us go to the other towns and villages and preach the gospel. Wisdom is central, but wisdom is insufficient. It's not enough. 
Remember the story of Saul and Ananias, not the Ananias and Sapphira Ananias, the guy who gets killed in Acts chapter 5. Ananias is a guy who lives in the city of Damascus. And uh, he has heard all the reports about this man named Saul. And what he doesn't know is what has just happened to Saul on the Damascus road, right? The blinding light, the voice from heaven, the total reorientation of his existence, right? He doesn't know that part of the story. All he knows is that Saul has arrived into town carrying letters giving him permission to arrest the church and drag them down to Jerusalem for trial. The Spirit of God speaks to Ananias and says, I want you to go over to this guy's house, I want you to lay hands on Saul and pray for him. And I love Ananias' reaction. He's like, um, Lord, I don't think this is such a good idea. You know, we have heard, and see the beauty of the conversation there? I mean, he wrestles with what he's hearing. He's like, whoa, hey, he says, we've heard about this man, that he has come here, how much harm he's done to your church, and he's come here to arrest us. And, and Jesus said, it's okay, he's mine now, go for it. Okay, against all seeming wisdom, Ananias goes over to this house, lays hands on Saul. Saul gets his sight back, and the greatest of all the apostles is launched. And you see this all through Scripture, right? Abraham, sacrifice your son. Moses, go back to the country in which you are wanted for murder and announce to the king of that country that you want him to release all of the slaves. I mean, you know, Gideon who's finally got himself a decent-sized fighting force, got 25,000 guys, says, no, I want 300. Right before you go into battle, you reduce your fighting force, you know, by more than 24,000 men? I mean, it's nuts! Right. Oswald Chambers says that common sense is the enemy of the supernatural life. That simply living a common-sense life, you will never live a supernatural life. Because often the things that God will ask us to do contravene, it seems, it seems to contravene wisdom. Now, ultimately, I don't think it ever does, right? Because to follow God is the wisest thing in the world. I mean, he knows more than we do. He sees more of what's going on. He knows what the enemy's up to. He knows where we need to move next and all those shifts and turns of our story. We cannot figure this out. And It's simply a posture of humility. Says, Jesus, what do I do? Show me the path of life. I need you desperately, and I need to walk with you intimately. And the fruit of it is life. Thou hast made known to me the path of life. Fruit of that is life. So let me speak to that area more than wisdom now. Bagger Vance, have all of you seen it? Story of a young man who has lost his heart because of World War I. The leader of a company lost all of the men in his division. And they were all his friends from Savannah, because back in those days, they tried to put all the men from the same city in the same unit and that kind of thing. So Juna comes back to Savannah, Georgia, a man taken out by the tragedy of life. He has lost heart badly. And uh, he just falls into drinking and, and hiding. And then the Holy Spirit comes to him in the person of Bagger Vance. Juna is a remarkable golfer. That's his glory. That's his particular gift, 
call place in the world. And um, there's a big match coming up. People of Savannah want Juna to play in the match. Juna doesn't want anything to do with it. Watch how Bagger Vance walks with Juna because it is brilliant. But this is exactly how God walks with a man. One of the first things God does in his work with a man is he reawakens desire. Crucial, step one, basic, foundational, primary. And that's why discipleship, as I'm trying to describe it in terms of walking with God, is so different than so many of those discipleship programs which do anything but reawaken desire, right? I mean, they tend to be duty, performance, obligation. But what God does is he comes and he stirs. He disrupts. He is an intruder, right? And he reawakens desire in a man's heart, and he intrigues him. He intrigues him. I mean, does God tell you everything all at once? God made your life perfectly clear? You know what you're supposed to do next? Of course not. Why? Because he wants you to walk with him, right? I mean, so the thing is, you got a good heart. If he gave you the plan, you'd go do it, right? And the problem is not disobedience. The problem is the loss of the intimacy. The reason he's not giving you the plan is he wants to walk with you. He wants the intimacy, okay? So he awakens this desire. He disrupts a man, shakes his world somehow, and he intrigues him. He intrigues him. He, he offers just enough to initiate a conversation, to initiate a relationship. This is so... Okay, so I'm sitting in the counseling session, to married couple, I'm now completely checked out of their story, though I'm nodding and smiling and mm, you know, kind of like that. And God says, I want you to quit, you know, and, and I want you to shut down your business. This was, oh, I don't know, gosh, six years ago, something like that. The very next day, the phone rings three times. And the first phone call was from the prior publisher at Nelson who said, are you going to write again after Sacred Romance? Do you have anything else you want to write? Intriguing awakening desire. There's a very funny story that goes with that. I said, uh, yeah, actually, I have two books on my heart. So one of them is this book for men. And uh, it wasn't Mike. It was a previous guy who worked there. He said, no, no, books for men don't sell. What else have you got? (laughs) Yeah. Um, God comes, reawakens desire. First phone calls that. Second two calls are invitations to come speak. And God sort of affirming a direction, intriguing, just enough to get it going. But I had no idea all this was going to unfold. I have no idea what's going to happen next, right? We walk with God. We, we just walk with God. Lord, you want us to do this? You want us to go that? Do we go here? Go D.C.? What? You're kidding me. Okay, you know, off we go. All right, now, next scene. Juno decides that he is going to play, begins to recover his desire, enters the tournament, and now now God's working with him. Now Bagger's going to begin to work with him. But the first part is, is, um, is really intriguing. He makes no suggestions. Leaves a man to his own resources. Because until you're desperate, right, you won't walk with God. I mean, until you desperately need him, you won't walk with him, and you'll take his counsel as optional. Right? Thanks for the suggestion. Think I'm going to go this way. Right? So, Bagger, he just kind of holds back, lets Juna flounder in that first shot. You know, doesn't even offer him a club. You know, 
And uh, because Judah is still a self-reliant man. And a self-reliant man will not find the path to life. And there are many good Christian men, successful pastors, counselors, doctors, you know, whatever, who are still very self-reliant men. They don't walk with God. They are moral men. They attend church, right? They believe in Christ, but they don't walk with God because they don't need him. What do you need God for, right? So first, he leaves him on his own, right, to deepen the crisis. He deepens the crisis with a man. He doesn't just rush into a man's life and fix everything, does he? No way. Step two, right, self-reliance, deepen the crisis. And then, when he's on the, the tee there for that water hole, then what does he do? What's that whole thing about? He takes him deeper into desire to make a deeper choice. He goes deeper into, you can quit. You want to quit? How much is your heart in this? You see? Because if your heart's not in it, his heart's not in it. It's as simple as that. How much do you want it? While you don't care, while you don't want, there's very little you can do for a man who doesn't really care. It's the hardest man to work with, right? The guy who doesn't really want anything. Jesus says, if you are thirsty, come unto me, and out of your inmost being will flow streams of living water, John 7. If you aren't thirsty, you know, you can't get the real walk with God going until you leave into self-reliance, deepen the crisis, deepen desire, right? And then... See, he's still living in the false self. And so, yes, he becomes the thwarter. He's going to thwart the false self. Honestly, you could just take this as a recipe for working with men. It's exactly what you, when you first sit down with a man, you have to intrigue him and you've got to go after his desire. You have to, you can't start with the false self, right? Or then it's just one more discipline, training, duty thing. You've got to go deeper. You're after his heart. Now, there are some things in the way. His self-reliance is in the way, right? That's a problem. His false self is in the way. Now, now with that thwarted, and it, and it goes on to thwart. I mean, it's just, it's painful to watch the next several holes. I mean, he's, you know, he's missing three-foot putts, and it's just, the man comes to the end of himself. And now, he's ready to listen to counsel. Now he's ready to walk intimately with God or to at least begin to learn how. Now Juna is full of questions. Now he's like, this, what? You know, and he's talking to Bagger. He's walking with him. He's receiving the instruction, the instruction that often looks counterintuitive, right? This little thing, my putter's got more lift than this, you know? Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what he needed in that situation. And then play the ball back in your stands. And that's exactly what he needed in that situation. Remember David fighting the Philistines, you know? One time God says, go out and take them on from the front. And six months later, God says, no, don't go from the front this time. Same army, same valley, looks like the same battle, right? This is the danger point. You're about to watch it here. Have you heard the expression, uh, you give a boy a hammer, the whole world looks like a nail? <laughs> okay. Give an editor a pen, the whole world looks like a manuscript to be edited. Um, a man discovers something that works for him, and then he just uses it, right? And even if God gave it to him, the gifts of God and the calling of God are irrevocable, right? Which is why you can see, you know, men who are such casualties in so many other ways succeeding in one area 
of their life, right? They still may be, you know, phenomenal in sports or phenomenal in the pulpit, right? But the rest of their life is a wreck. Yeah, he's found the hammer and now everything's a nail, okay? So David, you know, he, he beats the Philistines head on. Six months later, same field, same army, looks like the same battle. But that time God says, uh-uh, I want you to sneak around behind them and wait till you hear the sound of the marching in the balsam trees and then attack because then you will know the army of the Lord has gone before you. You have to walk with God. Even if it looks like the same situation, even if you find something that works, that seduction for a man, well, then he just uses that. So Juno walks with God for a while, he watched the Holy Spirit, then he finds something that works, and then pride comes in. Right? David does the same thing, walks with God so much of his life, then he decides he's got things under control. Right? And he doesn't need that intimate counsel and direction in this occasion or that one. Decides to number the troops, remember that episode, and take a census. And, then, you know, and his commander, the troops say, don't number the troops. It's God who's showing up for us. Don't shift to your own strength, giftedness, whatever. And uh, remember what happens. Quite a number of men die because of that. Okay, some thoughts on hearing from God. We have to begin with a conviction that he is still speaking. God is still speaking. That an intimate, conversational relationship with God is the normal Christian life. That's perfectly normal. That's not reserved for Moses, David, Jesus, when he walked the earth as he listened to his father, you know, Paul. It's normal. As I said before, the Bible is not a book of exceptions. Right? It's not, hey, here's this incredible story of how this man walked with God, but he was an apostle and that doesn't apply to you. you know? What good would a book of exceptions do you? Right? It's a book of examples. This is normal life. Here's how to walk with God. Here's how to walk with God. John 16, Jesus is about to leave. And he says something that I think is really poignant. He says, I have much more. This is verse 12 from John chapter 16. I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Okay? So Jesus says, I have a lot more I want to say to you more than you are now able to bear. But when the Spirit of truth comes, the Holy Spirit who comes to reside within our hearts, He will lead you in the way of truth. He will take from me and make known to you all things. We have to begin by the assumption that God is still speaking. He wants to speak. He longs to speak. It's the normal Christian life to hear from, walk in, intimate conversational relationship with God. Second, we have to assume that it is ours to hear his voice. You read the passage in John chapter 10 about the good shepherd, and the shepherd leads out his sheep, and it says the sheep recognize his voice. He says it several times in that passage, and they follow me because they know my voice. It's a given. Jesus is teaching. It's a given in Scripture that we will hear his voice. Those who belong to God, Jesus says, hear what God says. So 
He is still speaking, and it is ours to hear. It's our right, our privilege. It's part of what comes with our redemption. Third thing, then, is to begin to tune into our hearts. When God speaks to us, He does not speak to us in the room around us. He doesn't speak outside. He speaks from within. Because as Ephesians 3 says, Christ now dwells in our hearts. That's where He lives now, in us. It is in our hearts that He has taken up His dwelling. And so when we set about to hear the counsel of God, we tune in with our heart. And I've noticed that the men who, for the most part, generally speaking, the men who have a difficult time hearing from God are the men who tend to live farthest from their heart. You know, they're busy, driven, whatever, but they don't listen with the heart. They're not aware of the movements of their heart in a given day. They are checked out. It's like somebody who says, you know, I don't like the telephone, and they unplug the phone from the wall, and then they wonder why nobody ever calls. Well, that's the instrument by which you hear. It's the heart, okay? So cultivating an awareness of the movements and the rhythms of our own heart is essential. And therefore, kind of a sub-point under this, number three, tuning into our hearts, you have to unplug. I find it very difficult to hear from God when I am rushed, when I'm busy, when I've just come in out of the matrix, right? And I'm just, you know, I'm spinning and buzzing and whirling with all that. I don't hear. When I'm in that place, I don't hear. It's just a given, right? Come aside, Jesus says, abide in me, be still, all those scriptures, so that you can hear my voice. You have to unplug to hear the voice of God. And the next thing would be, you need to know your false self well. Because this is where we grow in a discernment to know who's speaking here. To know who's counseling here. What, what's going on? Is this me? If you know your false self well, then you'll be able to recognize it when he is substituting his counsel for the counsel of God. Lord, do you want me to buy this car? You deserve this car, John. You know? Yeah, if I know my false self well, if I know I normally hide in this situation, if I know I normally pose in this situation, if you know your false self fairly well, you can begin to discern the difference between your good heart given to you by Christ and the poser and who it is that might be speaking. And what goes directly with this is you have to be willing to hear no. The more I am willing to hear no, I can hear yes. Or in other words, any answer from God. God, you can say anything to me. Because if I can only hear a certain set of things, yes, you know, I give you my permission to buy that car, take that trip, move to this new job, quit your current position, whatever it is. If I only have a certain thing I can hear, I'm not going to hear from God. Or if I do, quote, hear, I won't be able to move with confidence because there'll be this nagging thing that it was just what I wanted. There is so much more to say about learning to hear the voice of God, walking with Him intimately. But let me conclude with two thoughts. First, that hearing from God, developing a conversational relationship with Him, is your right as a Christian. 
as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me because they know my voice. That is the normal Christian life. And as I said, all those stories in the Bible are not exceptions, but rather examples. That life, that conversational intimacy with God is not only available, but it is normal and it is your right as his child. I would also want to say it is something to be learned. I don't want this to usher in guilt or a sense of spiritual inadequacy. For many years of my own Christian life, I did not have a conversational relationship with God, largely because I was not taught how to. I wasn't told that it was available and my right, uh, nor was I shown how. So my second point in closing is just to say it is something to be learned over time, something that we grow in, something that we fight for something that we learn as we practice it. And to that end, let me recommend one more resource. Dallas Willard has written a wonderful book called Hearing God, Developing a Conversational Relationship with God. I think you'll find it helpful as you grow in your ability to hear God's voice, to discern God's voice from the other voices that you hear. And this is such a rich part of our life with God, such a rich part of our Christian experience. In fact, all the other streams depend on it, whether we're learning to engage in spiritual warfare or receiving his intimate counsel, walking in the stream of his deep healing of our hearts. The other three depend on this one, and that's why we started with it first.